This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and do the announcements, if everyone will send your attention this way. All right. So our first announcement is going to be our women's retreat. It's going to be September 17th through 19th. Uh, More details to come later and a sign-up. We'll send that out to everyone. And then our scripture reading today is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 58. Um, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a, a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Then he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you saw does not come to life unless it dies. And what you saw... What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps wheat or of some other grain. But God gives us a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heaven is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it, is not the, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we, also, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And I'm gonna continue reading through verse 58 on my phone. Um... In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I feel like there was more thanks that the scripture was just, everyone could sit down. Well, good morning. Jesus has risen. Yeah, I feel like we can't, <laughs> we, we have to say that. Um, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I was even just talking to Lauren this morning. I'm like, we get to talk about one of the more exciting topics uh, in all of Christianity this morning. We get to talk about the, the resurrection. And it kind of reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, uh, a guy that lives on our floor. We got into the elevator and he's like, what are you guys doing this weekend? You know, it's a Saturday. And I was like, oh, we're just, you know, getting some stuff done today. I was like, we, Easter is tomorrow. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal in my line of work. And, and he's like, it's kind of the biggest deal, isn't it? <laughs> and I kind of awkwardly laughed and got off the elevator. And I was like, I don't, oh, he's right. I don't have any like really good comeback for that. <laughs> so it's like my, apparently my neighbor down the hall has, uh, has a, a good grip on the importance of Resurrection Sunday. So I, I didn't, I didn't expect that, but I was a, it was cool to just hear him say that it, it is kind of the biggest deal. And uh, we, we have a, a giant passage of scripture this morning, but I think the, an easy way to kind of make some sense of it, an easy way to make sense of this passage is to, is to start from the end of the passage, and that's going to help us build towards where this is heading um, it's another kind of makes me think about. I get excited about things when I come back from work, or I've been reading, and I run into to Bridget, and I'm like, "Oh, you know this thing," and I just like start going, and she's like, "Hold up, hold up, hold up." She'll stop me sometimes and just say, "What? Where are you going? Like, 
what's the end goal of what you're telling me? And I'm like, oh, it's this thing that I learned. She's like, oh, okay, now I can listen. It's, it's not related to what we were just talking about five minutes ago. Maybe it is, I don't know. But if I stop you and kind of figure out where we're going, uh, then the rest of it is just gonna make more sense as I sort of follow you all along. So I wanted to start just in, in verse 58, because I think if we understand what Paul is saying in verse 58, if we understand kind of where he's going, uh, then this marathon passage, and we won't be able to touch on every little detail, but this marathon passage will start to, to make sense to us and hopefully help us enjoy and celebrate the resurrection. Because in, in all reality, there is nothing greater than the resurrection. My, uh, my, yeah, my, the guy down the hall knows for a fact <laughs> it is the greatest thing. There is nothing greater than the resurrection. So we get to celebrate that today. And there's a lot that we can learn and rejoice in and be thankful for even in this big passage. So look at verse 58 real quick. I kind of want to kind of want to show us where we're going. He gives all of these verses, this whole chapter. And then he ends with this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the greatest work of the Lord? The resurrection. The resurrection is the greatest work that the Lord has ever done. Everything is leading up to that. The new creation begins with that. We have salvation because of that. We have a future hope because of that. Amen. So Paul ends this entire section and says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's telling us to fix our eyes on the glory and the beauty of the most wonderful work that God has ever accomplished, and that's the resurrection. And it's encouraging because he says, if that's where you're fixing your heart, if that's where you're fixing your mind, if that's what's abounding in, in, in everything that you consider day to day, the very next sentence, he says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor or your efforts, your efforts to consider the most wonderful work of the Lord in the resurrections will not be in vain. Every effort you make to consider, to dwell on, to be steadfast in the resurrection is useful. Every thought you have considering the new creation in Christ is productive. And he tells us, I've given you all these wonderful things about the resurrection. So if you could just keep your heart and your mind fixed on this great and wonderful work of the Lord, that will never be in vain. So I'm excited this morning because we get to work through, we're gonna look at three reasons why there's nothing greater about the resurrection. We're gonna look at three reasons why there's nothing greater about the resurrection. So let's, let's pray and ask the Spirit to open our eyes to make some sense of all of those verses um, so that we can think about how wonderful the resurrection is. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you I thank you for Resurrection Sunday. I thank you, even in light of Good Friday, um, in the tone and the reality of the suffering of your son. Here we are on a, on a Sunday morning with beautiful weather, 
with a chance to worship and praise you with friends and family gathering, Lord. We get to, we get to show up on Sunday and proclaim your resurrection. Lord, I pray as we walk through this passage that we'd walk away today thinking, man, the resurrection is greater. There is nothing greater than what you've accomplished in the resurrection, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would lighten our eyes so that the things that we learn about your resurrection would be not just something we are thankful for and enjoy on a Sunday morning, but would be things that we, we consider and that we dwell on and that we remain steadfast in throughout the week so that we could have your joy and have your peace knowing in what you have accomplished, Lord. So I thank you for this morning and I thank you for just the resurrection and, and an opportunity to consider these things. In your name I pray, amen. All right, let's jump back to uh, verse 12. So apparently, we're kind of going through, we're, we're finishing up our series in Corinthians. We've been working through this letter um, that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, the number of things the Corinthian church got wrong could be an entire sermon series by itself. There, there's just not a lot, honestly, that they do right. I was listening to a, a radio show where a guy was like, as a pastor, the Corinthian church is oddly encouraging to me because there's so many things. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a community of believers that are trusting in what God has done. And so it's gonna be messy. And I think the Corinthian church is a, is a unique example of a, of a church that's, that's got almost nothing together. I, I, I talked to them about being like a sports bar church where people are just talking everywhere. People are drunk. There's all sorts of sexual morality. There's just, just, it's just a, it's a chaos and apparently one of the things that the Corinthian church was denying, at least some of the groups, was the reality that Jesus Christ has rose from the dead. So Paul starts in verse 12 addressing this and says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's like the thing that made you a church, the thing that, that, that gathered you together as a community is the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and now you're saying that there's no resurrection from the dead? He goes on in verse 13 and says, but if there's, there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, then our preaching is in vain and, and your faith or your trust in what we're saying is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting, misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise if it is true that the the dead are not raised. He's saying, we, we told you that our creator raised Christ from the dead. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, we're even lying about what God has said. And he goes on and says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, those who have died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, he's saying if you wanna proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that this life is the only life where we actually have any hope, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The savage. He's saying if there's no resurrection from the dead, if there's no other life on top of the life that we have now, then say all the good Christian things you wanna say, but we are of all people the most to be pitied. And it's interesting that he takes such an extreme 
position on that. And I think verse 17 is really helpful. Verse 17 sort of helps us see where he's getting at. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. And I think that's what, this is what, this is the reality that makes the, the resurrection, makes nothing greater than the resurrection. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, what does it mean then that we would still be in our sins? Christ is, Christ is the, the perfect sacrifice. Christ is the, the only one that perfectly obeyed the law. And now that he has been resurrected, God has accepted that sacrifice. And now, now our, our relationship with the Father is completely changed. The resurrection of Christ he says in the very, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one to be resurrected from the dead. He's like, look, before I go any further, I have to tell you flat out, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He is risen. <laughs> All right, thank you. He's saying, he's like, I can't even go on to explain what I'm talking about until I just get to the point that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And, and the reason why there's nothing greater than the resurrection, because it's the one act in history that is the ultimate DTR. It's the, it's the ultimate definition of our relationship with the Father. Without the resurrection, you are stuck in your sins and you are an enemy of God. Without the resurrection, there is no acceptable sacrifice and all you deserve is the wrath of God. It says, but with the resurrection, you're no longer stuck in your sins. There's nothing greater than the resurrection because it's the one thing that ultimately defines your relationship with God. Amen. The fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead means that he is accepted, which means that we are accepted. And you might say, well, how does Jesus' acceptance, how does Jesus' acceptance have anything to do with my relationship to God? How, does the, how is Jesus being raised from the dead and accepted as holy? Because I'm not holy. I do sin, I do fall short of the glory of God. How does the acceptance of Jesus Christ relate to my acceptance with God? He goes on to kind of explain this in verse 21. We're gonna see this kind of a bunch of times where he compares Adam, the first man, to the, what he calls the second Adam, the second representative of all humanity. Look at verse 21, he says, for as by a man came death, Adam brought death into the world, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So he's like, let me explain how everyone else can be resurrected in Christ. Verse 22, he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as in Adam all die. You know, I talk to people sometimes, I hear the phrase when we mess up or we, we do something, I hear, well, we're only human, right? And I feel like the biblical theological way to say this is we're only all in Adam. We're, ba we're, we're saying that we, we're all part of this creation. We all come from Adam. And it, uh, what is it? Uh, the only two, two sure things in life are death and taxes. I think Jefferson said that. <laughs> but we're, 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 right. <laughs> Paul is saying, look, there are two representatives of all of creation, all of humankind. 
And as sure as everyone born in Adam dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You're represented by one of two Adams. One Adam that gives us death because he failed at the task that God gave him in the garden or one Adam that gives us life. This is why there's nothing greater than the resurrection is because when you are represented by that second Adam, nothing you do has any more effect on God's love of you, God's concern for you, your relationship with God, than anything you do could keep yourself from dying. It's so certain in Adam that you will die. It's so certain in Christ that no matter what you do, the heavenly father loves you and your relationship with him is set. There's nothing you can do to change that. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, there's nothing greater that could affect your relationship with the father. And he goes on to talk about sort of the order of all these things. And we won't get into all the details, but he, he's, he's important, it's important for Paul to, as, he, as he explains how all of this happens to, to say he's a God of order. Ben posted a, a blog post about orderly worship. There, there, we've had a couple of conversations just about um, authority structures, even within 1 Corinthians. And he, he explains how there, there's a, yes, we all are raised from the dead in Christ. That relationship is defined, but there's sort of a process for the way this works out. And he, then he goes back to the Corinthians and says, look, you guys are denying the reality of the resurrection. If He, he goes back to my, our our we're the most to be pitied. He's like, I, I die every day. I, I struggle. I have, I have all of these hard things about my life as apostle. If there's no other life in the resurrection of Jesus, then I'm the most to be pitied. And he sort of ends this section in verse 34. It's, it's a little sharp. In verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor, Ooh. as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. For some have no knowledge of God. And I thought, what would the, if we're talking to a Christian community like Paul is doing in Corinthians, and you're denying the resurrection, why would he tell them that they have no knowledge of God? If they're, if they're denying the reality of this next life, why would he tell the Corinthians that they have no knowledge of God? And the, the word he uses there is, was a word we can translate ignorance. You're ignorant of God. You're, not, you're unaware of the reality of God. And, and one, another time Paul used this word was in Acts 17. It's, it's a, it's it's a non-Christian group that's sort of asking him about his beliefs. And he says the times of ignorance or the times of no knowledge of God have passed because he has raised Jesus from the dead. And I think what Paul is getting at right here is like, if you are gonna deny the reality, the central tenet of the gospel, if you're gonna deny the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that Jesus Christ is the one that determines your relationship with God, then you are utterly ignorant of how God works. You're actually, you're actually operating Corinthian church. He's talking to a church. He's like, you're operating like those uh, unbelievers I spoke to in Greece. If you're gonna deny the reality of the resurrection, then in a very real sense, you're ignorant of, of everything that God is doing in the world. That's how, that's how important the reality of the resurrection is. 
And he goes on. He says, there's nothing greater than the resurrection because it's the thing that defines our relationship with God. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you didn't do. It's not about what you're ashamed of. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's about the fact that Jesus is accepted. And in him, that's how your relationship is defined with God. He says, it's not just that the re- there's nothing greater than the resurrection because it defines your relationship. There's nothing greater than the resurrection because it demonstrates Christ's power. There's nothing greater than the resurrection because it shows us what he calls is Jesus becoming a life-giving spirit. The resurrection shows us that Jesus becomes a life-giving spirit. And he talks about this in the context of of some seemingly uh, sassy pushback on the resurrection. Um, At verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how is it that the dead are raised? That doesn't make any sense. With, with what kind of body are they gonna come? So it's just, it's just weird like pushback on the resurrection and saying, some people are gonna say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see people raised from the dead, so, so that doesn't make any sense to me. And he goes, he responds to them in verse 36, says, you foolish person, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he, and he goes on to actually give us an example. He's like, look, you think it's impossible that there's a resurrection? You think it's impossible that there's another life? How about we look at plants? You're familiar with plants. You put a seed in the ground. It doesn't look that great. It's, it's, for all practical purposes, it's dead. But then what comes of it? A wonderful tree or a crop, life, something more glorious. He's like, even in creation, we have these little images that show us that there's something beyond this life. And he, and he, he kind of gives examples of the, the, the sun and the moon. He says, look, even the sun has greater glory, greater majesty than the moon. Even the stars have different glory from each other. And he, he talks about the animal world and how there's differences in, in, in who we are. And he puts those things together and he, he ties them all together in verse 42. And he's like, look, that's how it is with the resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor like the seed. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, again, this comparison with Christ and Adam, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And I think when we think spiritual, we think like ethereal, like you could walk through walls if you're spiritual or something like that. Think about this, and he's gonna go on. The first Adam was made from the dust, and he breathed the breath of life in him, saying this is the natural body. There's a a new body that's, that's made by the spirit in a way that even Adam wasn't created. There's a new body that's not even made with dust, that's made ex nihilio, out of nothing, from the spirit, this brand new body of Christ. 
this body that, that was sown in dishonor on the cross, as we thought about even on Good Friday, that was raised in honor, in glory, in majesty, that was, that was sown perishable, that was raised imperishable. He says, the first Adam was a living being. He quotes Genesis before the fall. The first Adam was a living being. This is a wonderful thing. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit. And our, and our whole series has been, we're taught by the spirit. We've been, we've been taught by the spirit for these last few months, all kinds of things. And one of the things we talked about at the beginning is the spirit doesn't work in probable ways. The spirit works in powerful ways. The spirit doesn't work in probable ways. He works in powerful ways. And now, now Jesus has become, in a really fascinating way, Jesus has now become with this new resurrection body. He's no longer weak. He's powerful. He's no longer fadeable. He's unfading in his glory. And he describes him as a life-giving spirit. So the fact that we can be taught by the spirit the fact that we can gather together and, and consider the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that here we are 2,000 years later singing and worshiping our creator is evidence of the fact that this life-giving spirit has come. There's nothing greater than the resurrection because it shows us the power and the majesty of the king that we worship. And I think this is why Jesus tells his disciples, it's better that he goes which has always kind of shook me a little bit because I'm thinking like, Jesus, I think it'd be better if you were just here and like teaching us the things. You know, I think about our church's named Emmaus where he taught all those things on the road to Emmaus. I'm like, I would have liked to have been there for that. That would have been, that would have been the best biblical theology. And Jesus says, no, it's better that I go because then the helper will come, then the spirit will come. Jesus understands that what is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. Jesus understands what is sown imperishable. He's raised, or sown perishable, he's raised imperishable. He's become the life-giving spirit so that he can transform us more and more into the image of his son. And there's nothing greater than the, the resurrection because that shows us the power of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 47. It talks about this power. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven, this new spiritual body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And I think about, it's a kind of the same thing he's saying is, as in Adam all die, as also as, as those who are of the man of dust, they image him. So because of Adam, we all sin and we all fall short. And he goes on to say, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are the man of, of the man of heaven. He's telling us right there. Because we're united to him, he's transforming us. He's changing us. He's the, he's the life-giving spirit who's enabling us to look like him, to image him to behold his beauty and be transformed by that beauty so that we, we have inward love for one another and outward love for the city around, around us. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
let us bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is exhorting us that the resurrection shows us the power of Jesus. The resurrection shows us that he is the life-giving spirit that equips us to bear his image. There's a little footnote, maybe just a side note for you guys. It says, in most of our Bibles, it says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you look in your Bible, there's a little footnote that says, let us bear the image of the man of heaven. Uh, That's what's called uh, a textual variant. If you're interested in how our New Testament came to be, the New Testament that we're holding in our hands, would love to have that conversation with you. It's a super exciting topic for me. But, it, but what's fascinating is that our oldest manuscripts, which is P46, it's an old papyri manuscript from about 200 years after, uh, about 150 years after Christ, and a manuscript from about 330 called Sinaiticus. Our oldest manuscripts say that it's saying, let us. It's an it's a exhortation to say that we should bear the image of Christ. And the difference is actually just one letter, one letter in the ending of a Greek term. And, and a lot of commentators think, well, how is, he, how is he commanding us to do this if we're, if we're looking forward to our transformation? And I think, so they, so they take the later, they sort of take the later letter and use the later letter, and that's why they put the footnote there to sort of let us know that some of the earlier manuscripts say, hey, this is an exhortation. And I think as we, even as we look through Corinthians, it's not, it doesn't, that one little letter doesn't make a huge difference because what, as we look through Corinthians, obviously the Spirit is transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And there is a sense in which we bear his image today as a, as a man of suffering, and we are gonna bear his image as a man of glory. We're gonna see his power, and we're gonna be transformed in an instance. And Paul goes on to talk to us about the, the, the other reason why the, there's nothing greater than the resurrection, because it gives us the one thing we can put our hope in. The one thing we can put our hope in that's greater than anything in this world is the fact that, Someday we will be transformed. We will, our imperishable bodies, our perishable bodies will be made imperishable. The fact that there is another life is the one certain thing that we can put our hope in. Look at what he says in verse 50. Another reason why there's nothing greater than the resurrection. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. And he's saying, look, if we are, want to walk into this eternal kingdom, if we want to stand before a holy God and enjoy his glory and his presence for forever, where there's fullness of joy, where every tear is wiped away, nothing in this world can get us there. The imperishable things we trust in cannot get us to the perishable things we trust in cannot get us to the imperishable reality of the kingdom of God. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Amen. (laughs) That's where our hope, that's why there's nothing greater than the resurrection. Because that 
eternal hope in the kingdom of heaven, that eternal hope in the very presence of God, that eternal hope for, for taking our dishonorable bodies and making them honorable bodies, taking our, our weak bodies and seeing them as powerful bodies, taking our natural bodies and then becoming spiritual bodies, that eternal hope is the only thing that's never gonna let us down. The resurrection, the resurrection is what gives us confidence in that, that we have hope in being transformed. Look at what he says. Verse 54, he says, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That's an important verse right there. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So why do I have confidence? Why, do I, why can I have hope that no matter what, in Christ, God is gonna raise me in an imperishable body? Why do I have absolute confidence that I don't have to fear death? And he gives us the answer right there. He says, the sting of death is sin. It's like the, the word for poison. The thing that makes death the, the wicked, disgusting, painful, difficult thing that it is, is the reality of sin. Because of sin, things are broken in the world. And death is difficult, and death is hard, and death is not how it should be. But he says the, the power of sin is the law. So the law reveals our sin, whether in creation or in his word, the law reveals that we all fall short. So the more we understand about, the more we don't measure up to God, the more sting death has. Which by itself would be, would be a sad reality, but he goes on to say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He says, if, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you are no longer in sin. If you're in Christ and, and the resurrection has changed your relationship with the Father and you are no longer in sin, then death has no sting. Amen. Death, 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 has no, death has no negative consequences for those who are in Christ because the sting of death has been taken away. You're no longer in sin. In Revelation, it says that those who are in Christ will not be hurt by the second death the first one being the fall, the second one being our physical bodies wasting away. Because we will not be hurt by the second death. That's something you can hope in. That's something that will never let you down. That's something that if it's true that Christ has been raised from the dead and you're no longer in sin, then the sting of death is gone. And then he ends kind of where we began. So look, there's nothing greater than the resurrection. The resurrection has completely changed your relationship with the Father. The resurrection shows you that Jesus is now a life-giving spirit that empowers you to be transformed and to, to bear his image. And the resurrection guarantees you that you have hope. That no matter what is disappointing you in this life, you have hope for the next. You have hope for a better one. 
You have hope for your dishonorable body being made an honorable body. You have hope for this natural body becoming a spiritual body. And that's why it says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the resurrection work of the Lord. Every moment and every thought and every consideration you give to the resurrection of Christ is not in vain. Because that defines who you are, that empowers you to look like Christ, and that gives you hope that nothing else will. And thanks be to God for this wonderful gift, the resurrection that we get to celebrate today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit, even working this morning. Thank you that you are a life-giving spirit that unites us to your son and that changes our relationship with you, Lord. Thank you that we can worship and we can sing and we can consider that there's nothing greater than your resurrection. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds and, and make the joys and the reality of this resurrection something that, that sticks with us this week, something that we can, we can consider and dwell on and, and think about as we deal with the, the difficulties of the day or the, or the joys of the things that you give us, Lord. There's, there's something more, there's something greater than we could possibly imagine. Lord, I pray that you as our life-giving spirit would make that real to us this week. I thank you that we can gather and consider these things this morning. Thank you that you are so good to us and you communicate these wonderful truths about what you're doing so that we can worship you. In your name I pray, amen.